Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to a new episode of New Books in Islamic Studies. I'm your host, Sher Ali Tharin. For each new episode, we choose an important new book in the field of Islamic studies and we chat with its author. In what promises to become a classic, Adib Khalid's Making Uzbekistan, Nation, Empire and Revolution in the Early USSR, published by Cornell University Press in 2015, examines the interaction of nationalism and religious reform in 20th century Muslim Central Asia. How does the desire and anticipation of revolution generate new ways of imagining Islam, politics, and the nation? While addressing this question in the context of Muslim modernist voices and movements in Tsarist and eventually Soviet Russia, Khalid presents an intimidatingly dense yet deliciously rich narrative of how the Bolshevik revolution transformed Islam and Muslims in Central Asia. With a focus on the religious and intellectual careers of scholars attached to the modernist Jadid movement, Khalid explores ways in which they imagined the idea of a modern religious and political order through appeals to what they imagined as authentically national sources and roots. Brimming with nuance and insight, this book is both painstakingly researched and lucidly written. It will also make an excellent choice for a reading for both upper-level undergraduate and graduate seminars on historiography and its methods, Islam and modernity, Islam in Central Asia, and on religion and colonialism. Here now is my conversation with Professor Adib Khalid. Hello, Adib. How are you doing? Uh, very well. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, well, Adib, as I was saying just before we uh, went live, so to say, that uh, such a pleasure reading this book. Uh, it's really intellectual history at its best uh, in the kind of multi-layered analysis that you present us. Uh, so we have a tradition on uh, new books in Islamic studies that our first question is always biographical. And Adib, could you share with us a bit with our listeners uh, the story of how you became a scholar interested in Islam and Muslim societies and a scholar of uh, Central Asia? Yes, uh, it's actually quite autobiographical. I grew up in Lahore in Pakistan, <clears throat> during the Cold War. And I was coming of age, I was in high school when the uh, Soviet intervention in Afghanistan happened. And I had always been interested in uh, in the world. And all of a sudden I realized that no one knew anything about what was on the other side of Afghanistan. We all knew there was the Soviet Union and uh, everywhere in the world the Soviet Union was conflated with Russia but it's not Russia, so what is it? And uh, that's how we got obsessed with inflation in high school in the early 1980s. And when I went to university, I was I knew that I wanted to do something on Central Asia. Uh, so not quite the normal intellectual <laughs> trajectory, I'm afraid. But I so I came to Central Asia first. It was, uh, you know, Tashkent is 750 miles away from where I uh, grew up, but it might as well have been on a different planet in the uh, during the Cold War. It was far and was inaccessible. And so, so there was that fascination, but also a sense that here's another Muslim society that uh, in some ways shares a lot with the one I was growing up in, but in many ways... Had, had an utterly different trajectory in the modern period. So that's how I got uh, interested in the modern history of Central Asia, trying to explain, trying to uh, explain both in some ways the differences with the kind, with the Muslim society uh, that I knew in, in Pakistan, but also to try to understand Central Asia on its own. Uh, uh, on its own. I was able to go 
to Central Asia for the first time in 1985. So I actually did see it in the Soviet period before any of the transformations of the Gorbachev era began to uh, take root. And in some ways, I've been really uh, lucky uh, that uh, the course events took allowed me to uh, uh, to go to Central Asia to work, uh, do field work, do archival work, all the stuff that was basically unimaginable, even as late as 1985. So anyway, I came to Central Asia first. I, uh, I'm, I'm still would not, uh, I would hesitate to say that I really study Islam per se. I'm, I'm I would like to think of myself as someone who works on uh, who's engaged in the comparative study of Muslim societies, of which uh, Islam and its modern incarnations are a a central part. So to begin with a broad uh, question uh, of sorts, uh, how would you describe the the central uh, theme and argument uh, of this book? And uh, what kind of an intervention uh, have you sought to make uh, in this book, in uh, refining our understanding of modern Central Asia? Yeah, this is, um, actually, I had to think twice or three times about this question, because in some ways, uh, there are two or three different arguments I'm making, and they are intertwined, uh, which is one of the reasons why, you know, this book took so long to write. (laughs) And, you know, in some ways, all the things you teach students and graduate students about how to formulate a research project. Um, I I didn't do any of that. Uh, I was interested in what happened in Central Asia in the aftermath of the Russian Revolution. Uh, And so I did a lot of archival work. uh, And once I began writing, then I realized that, uh, you know, there are a number of different arguments to be made here. So one set of arguments is about uh, cultural and intellectual history of modern Muslim societies, of of modern Islam, of how um, Muslim modernism uh, got transformed into something else as a result of social and political transformations that happen in the in the world at large. And in that sense, the Russian Revolution is a monumental event. It's, it's something of world historic importance, uh, and it, its uh, effects went far and wide. So, so that's one set of arguments uh, I'm, I'm trying to make to uh, try to uh, grapple with the cultural radicalism of the 1920s. Uh, Another argument is about uh, uh, the Soviet Union. What kind of a state was it? Uh, Where, uh, how did power work and what kind of uh, connections were there between the center and, uh, and the peripheries? And so there is been a great deal of literature on the Soviet Union's nation-making project. Um, uh, and the argument uh, that the Soviet Union sort of took, Soviet policies took nations to be ontologically real, and they actually, that Soviet policies had a lot to do with crystallizing and shaping national identities in, so, uh, in the many nationalities of the Soviet Union. So I'm taking that argument, but then looking at it from the experience of one of those nationalities rather than looking at the unfolding or the implementation of policy as conceived in the center on which there's been uh, a lot of wonderful work done. I'm more interested in how those policies then affected centralations. And finally, the third intervention is really about um, the making of uh, national identities and national solidarities in Central Asia, and specifically in uh, in Uzbekistan, which I think is uh, in many ways the central uh, uh, a, a, a central country in uh, the region that up the other states of Central Asia are in many ways defined against it. So these are the, the three sets of concerns I have that run through the book. And my basic hope is 
to be able to talk about this decade of the 1920s uh, at a level of detail and with archival evidence, uh, including that in vernacular languages that has um, pretty much never before been uh, deployed at quite the same level of detail as I uh, try to do here. Now, one of the key ideas that you pursue uh, throughout this book that I was very interested in is what you talk about the divergent and uh, different understandings of revolution found among Uzbek intellectuals, and we'll come to those in a moment, and the Bolsheviks. Uh, what was this difference in how they thought about the idea of revolution, and how is that difference uh, significant uh, for your concerns in this book? <laughs> Yeah, no, that's a very good question. I mean, on the one, I think we need to start off with the idea that, you know, the revolution happened. Mm-hmm. And the revolution happened in February of 1917 when the Tsar abdicated. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was quite unforeseen. It's, the Bolsheviks had this, um, uh, at least this theoretical idea of what might happen with the revolution. For the Uzbek intellectuals, uh, Revolution up until that point had played no part in their um, in their thinking. But once the revolution happens, the old system is gone. All the bets are off. The political and cultural field are radically reshaped. So then, then people begin to endow revolution with their own meanings, and I think this is a fundamental argument in my book in some ways that both the Jadids, the Uzbek intellectuals, and the Bolsheviks had understandings of what revolution was supposed to be, but they were very, very different. The Bolsheviks, uh, again, were nowhere on the scene in February of 1917 when the revolution happens, yet by October they had taken power at the center, and eventually they were able to to establish power in Turkestan as well. And then their project was really to monopolize the meaning of revolution and to endow it with something that is driven by class that's primarily about um, class struggle and ultimately that it will be the party and the Bolsheviks who will define what revolution is. And in that, uh, nations had a place, but uh, it was really not a central place. For the Bolshevik, uh, for the Jadids, on the other hand, then revolution uh, provides the sense of possibility that uh, of a massive transformation in the limits of the possible. What had been practically unimaginable in January of 1917, had become not just desirable, but perhaps not far enough by the summer of 1917. And it was here that conflicts within Muslim society actually pushed the Jadid into a more radical posture. They begin to realize that sort of the kind of incremental evolutionary change through exhortation that they had been pushing for before the revolution uh, might not be enough. Uh, If anything, uh, society uh, was not very keen on some of those things. So it was the sense of political weakness, indeed political defeat. They lose elections during the year 1917 that Push the Jadis to the idea of that, that gradualism is useless, that there's too much opposition in society, more revolutionary means of transformation are, are necessary. But that idea of revolution has rather little to do with uh, the way the Bolsheviks understood that term. Because for the Jadis, the nation is absolutely central. Now, as you mentioned, the central protagonist of the story that you tell in this book are the Jadids, uh, these intellectuals and activists about whom you've written substantively uh, before. Also, this is your third monograph on this on the subject. Uh, for those of us who may not uh, be familiar with this context, Adib, uh, I was wondering if you could just briefly describe to us uh, who were the Jadids and what were some of the highlights of their program of religious and societal reform uh, and uh, through what kinds of media and the kinds of texts that they tried to disseminate this reform project. Could you just give us a brief introduction to the Jadid movement and its aspirations? 
Sure, of course. Um, so its origins in Central Asia lie at the turn of the century, of the 20th century. And in some ways, it's part of a much broader phenomenon, that of Muslim modernism that you find in different uh, articulations throughout the Muslim world in the late 19th and the early 20th century, uh, whether it's in India with um, the Aligarh movement or in the Ottoman Empire or in Egypt. Uh, you have various modernist movements that seek to uh, reconcile Islam and modernity, but what is actually happening is that people are deploying new ways of knowing Islam. They come to Islam in a new way, uh, but they're also charged by the situation in which, they, in the historic situation in which they find themselves, that of colonial rule. Or in the case of the Ottoman Empire, uh, vast encroachments on Ottoman sovereignty by uh, imperial powers. So those are the questions, uh, the living questions that Muslim modernism sought to answer. They have at their disposal new means. Uh, uh, print is of uh, fundamental importance. The press emerges that creates a public space in which society uh, or new, new groups in society can then discuss uh, the future. Uh, you have new kinds of schooling, new kinds, uh, you have uh, media such as uh, 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 the theater, uh, poetry gets uh, put to new kinds of uses and um, so on and so forth. Up in the case of Central Asia, this was still very much a nascent movement, uh, having to do with the fact that Russian conquest uh, took place only in the 1860s and the 70s, uh, and uh, Jadidism as a social phenomenon is still fairly. Yeah. Uh, week in Central Asia at the time of the revolution. By that, up until 1917, the basic uh, form of action is, I, I, I like to call it exhortation, uh, okay. trying to convince society to mend it, its ways according to the diagnosis offered by this new group, which in itself then is a claim to power. But that claim is made through the press, through plays, through, uh, through new kinds of writing made possible by print. And it's that that then gets transformed by the new possibilities and the new challenges that uh, the revolution, the Russian revolution offers mm -hmm. with a new, when the political and the cultural fields are actually transformed. And that then uh, radicalizes uh, the Jadids in significant ways. Uh, part of it, as I said, was opposition from society. So if, uh, you know, the call for reform is a claim to leadership and a claim to power that we know the answer to, the, uh, we know, we have the diagnosis for the future of the society, follow us. Turns out in 1917 that uh, when the politics of exhortation turns into the politics of elections, that very few people really take that claim seriously. So in some ways, it's the weakness as a social phenomenon of Jadidism then radicalizes. Uh, instead, instead of saying, oh, let's modulate our views, uh, the in the in the midst of the revolution, the, the, the lesson that the Jadis learn is quite the opposite, that the only way uh, to beat out, quote-unquote, reaction um, in, in society is to take ever more radical positions because only those can then undo the opposition of, uh, uh, that they are facing from within society. And here the radicalism means both ever greater uh, kind, uh, kinds of transformation sought in society, such as the ideas about 
the pace of women undergo substantial transformation, they become ever more radical. Uh, what it needs to be done with um, politics, with, with language, becomes radicalized. And in many ways, what needs to be done with uh, with religion becomes radical, radicalized. And here, the critique of uh, customary practices, which was fundamental to Jadidism, had always, even before 1917, carried, it, carried with it some sense of what I call anti-clericalism. Uh, of course, there's no clergy in Islam, but uh, the rhetoric was often quite anti-clerical, often boring anti-clerical um, rhetoric from contemporary Europe. And even before 1917, you can see uh, the Jadid uh, criticizing the ulama, uh, religious scholars of Islam, uh, for being um, enemy, uh, uh, enemies of uh, reason, of progress, enemies of religion itself. But that becomes completely uh, radicalized again after 1917. So you uh, I think one, one of the themes I develop, especially in Chapter 7, is this, uh, an Islamic anti-clericalism that uh, explodes after 1917. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the very interesting concepts that you explore uh, in this book is uh, what you call the idea of the cultural revolution or the revolution of the mind. Uh, and you uh, examine a number of interesting texts and plays and, and, and other kinds of uh, 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 you know, forms of articulating uh, the agenda of reform that the Jadids did. So could you uh, um, tell us a bit about what were the key features of this cultural revolution that the Central Asian Muslim intelligentsia or the Jadids sought to usher in the decade or so after 1917? And you make a very important point that this is a time of tremendous intellectual creativity and you, that really is on display uh, in this book. And how did the conditions of... Uh, you know, the, the, the revolution and the decade after that, how did the political and institutional conditions make it possible for them to imagine this idea of a cultural revolution? So could you say a bit about this idea, this category, and how you explore this in this book? Right, okay. Um, so the cultural revolution, uh, I mean, it's in some ways perhaps a contentious term, but looking back, there is no question that there is tremendous creativity on display in in the 10 years after 1917, and that a lot of it doesn't actually come from institutions of the Soviet state. Uh, Those barely exist in that decade. And so these are enthusiasms unleashed by the sense of possibility that these uh, intellectuals share. And they are not... you know, entirely but I'm, uh, in, uh, isolated from uh, everywhere else. Similar things are going on in uh, and the, the, in Azerbaijan, in Tatarstan, and in uh, the Ottoman Empire that in this decade goes from being a decrepit uh, empire that had lost the World War to um, Something that's again revolutionized by a similar kind of an uh, of an elite into the Republic of Turkey. So this is the broader context in which the cultural revolution in Central Asia happens. Its key features are an intense preoccupation with the nation. So the nation defined increasingly ethnically as the Turks of Central Asia, or rather the sedentary. Muslim Turks of Central Asia, uh, becomes the absolutely central uh, locus of concern. That what one's obligations and one's um, efforts should be directed uh, to that, a nation that is now imagined as ethnic, uh, without necessarily disowning Islam in it, but it's the Turkism that is absolutely central there. Uh, that then brings with it the sense of then uh, creating a a nationally authentic modern for the nation. And here you have a phenomenon such as language purification, uh, which uh, happens 
in this decade. It doesn't go nearly as far as it does in Turkey in the 1930s, but nevertheless, there is a sense that we need to um, to de-Arabize and de-Persianize our language, make it nationally authentic. Uh, <clears throat> there is a sense that we need new forms of uh, writing, so the novel emerges in the 1920s. The, um, in the first Uzbek novels uh, appear at that time. Poetry becomes quite different. There's, a, a, again, a sense that we need to make uh, poetry modern and national, and that then makes it a revolt against the Persianate tradition. Mm-hmm. Then uh, the idea of a ruse as a system of prosody that uh, had basically been uh, the accepted convention of writing poetry in Uzbek or in Chavatai uh, is overthrown and basically in this decade people like Fitzgerald and Chultan begin to write poetry that's very, very different. It's lyrical, it's vocabulary is different, it's meter is different, the structure is different, this message is different. And uh, along with that comes a new, again, as I said, a new sense about religion and the, or rather, the, well, uh, about religious authority, about who should wield it and what are the uh, traditional carriers of religion or what, what place they are to have in society. And that's where anti-clericalism then actually is a pretty substantial part of, uh, of this culture, of this cultural revolution. Mm-hmm. So I think these are some of the main uh, features. You can find that, again, mm-hmm. you know, they're, they're, they're very clear parallels in other Soviet Muslim mm-hmm. uh, republics, especially in Tatarstan and in Azerbaijan. And I think there are distinct parallels also in, in, in Turkey. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, I want to come to the theme of uh, this Islamicate anti-clericalism in, in a moment. But before I do that, Adib, just a question that came to my mind that I think would be useful for our listeners also. Uh, one of the key protagonists uh, who really occupies many of the pages of your book is Abdurro Fitrat, about whom you've written before also. So I was wondering, could you just briefly say a bit about who was Fitrat and maybe just one example of uh, a text or a play uh, that you examine uh, in your book that sort of shows uh, this uh, this theme of the nation and ways in which he you know, imagined uh, the idea of a, uh, a revolution. So if you could just briefly uh, introduce us to who he was and maybe briefly tell us a bit about one of his texts or plays and so on. Sure. Um, you know, he is a very uh, fascinating character, at least uh, to me, because he embodies or his uh, life and his intellectual trajectory embodies many of these transformations that uh, affect Central Asia in this uh, period. So he was born in um, 1889, uh, a decade after uh, the Russians had arrived um, in Bukhara. His father his education was sort of what was conventional in Bukhara for a man of his uh, status. He attended madrasas. Uh, he wrote uh, only in Persian uh, up until 1917. And, but the fateful thing that happened was he was sent or he went to study abroad uh, for his higher education and the Destination he chose was Istanbul, even despite his Persian speech. Uh, Istanbul, the capital of the most uh, significant Muslim sovereign state of the time. And while he was there, he was there for four years between 1909 and 1913, very, very tumultuous years of uh, debate. And, and again, uh, thinking about the future. And it was here that he picked up many of his central concerns, including his fascination with uh, Turkism. Uh, uh, He returned in 1913. He continued to write in Persian, but in 1917, he gives up on that. And after that, for 10 years, he writes only in in Uzbek, and he plays a large role in... uh, trying to modernize and Turkify, Turkicize and um, 
de-Arabize and de-Persianize the you know, vocabulary and to coin any vocabulary. Um, up until 1917, he was very much a Muslim modernist reformer. He wrote a uh, a history of Islam for school children. He wrote a uh, um, a life of the prophet, uh, and so on and so forth. But then, after 1917, partly as a result of opposition from uh, the ulama, he drifts farther and farther into anti-clericalism that then leads him to um, uh, ultimately to that kind of uh, Islamicate irreligion I talk about. And we can go back to that in a minute. Uh, but so if before 1917 he had really written about the need for reform, his, one of his key texts is uh, the, the tales of an of an uh, Indian traveler. So the fictional Indian Muslim traveler comes to Bukhara and lays out all the things that are in need for reform and lays out a um, uh, sort of a a program of how that might uh, be brought about. Uh, during nineteen, uh, during the years of the revolution, Fitzgerald is absolutely fascinated by Indian developments. He writes uh, three different plays on uh, Indian themes, uh, again about an Indian national struggle, uh, anti-colonial national struggle. And that is, in some, many ways, a way where he sort of really articulate his idea of national struggle in a revolutionary mode. Mm-hmm. And then the, there are the three texts that he writes in 1923 and 24 that I analyze at length in my mm-hmm. book, where I think he has uh, grown quite disenchanted with religious reform, with religion itself. And, um, so uh, it's a cycle of um, one uh, of three uh, tracts that he writes. Uh, the first one is called Qiyamat, um, the Day of Judgment, where it is a satirical take on the Islamic story of the soul's journey from the grave uh, to, to paradise. Uh, the second is called uh, Satan's Revolt Against God, and that retells the story of uh, Azazel's refusal to bow down in front of Adam and has been cast out uh, as shaitan. Uh, and here, too, it's, uh, it's a... Uh, in some ways, it's a satire. In many other ways, it's a, a very skeptical retelling of that story. And finally, he uh, finds... Uh, uh, a, thir- uh, a third track is an exposition of the work of uh, uh, Mirza Abdul Qadir Bedil, a, mm-hmm. an Indian poet of Central Asian origin. And Fitrat explicates his poetry uh, and finds in it an indigenous, authentically national, local source of deep philosophical skepticism about Islam and about uh, religion in general. So those are, uh, I'm afraid I've not actually spoken about any single work in any great detail, but I think there has been this trajectory of writing first only in Persian uh, on very often mm-hmm. pious reformist topics through to this middle period around the time of the revolution with the fascination with uh, anti-colonial liberation and revolution, these Indian plays, and then his, uh, the work of his dis- disenchanted uh, years after 1923 and 24. After that, he went on to do a, a great deal of scholarship on, uh, where he, on, on, on religious and literary history. He wrote a number of uh, books where he basically creates a canon of uh, Central Asian Turkic uh, literature of which to which modern Uzbek is the heir. Mm-hmm. So. Now, one of the very interesting themes of uh, your book, which I think will be of uh, tremendous interest to even specialists of Islamic studies, is the way you show the intra-Muslim debates and contestations that emerged in the post-1917 era. And part of that you alluded to earlier also in talking about the Islamicate anti-clericism. 
so how what were some of the ways in which the jadids challenged uh, the religious authority of the ulama and another theme that you explored let me just add uh, that to this question is what were some of the major you know overlaps and also um, differences in how the jadids approached uh, the idea of religion and uh, bolshevik attitudes towards religion if you could combine those two threads in in uh, in your answer sure um well i'm a, a I think the idea of intra-Muslim debate uh, is absolutely central to my book because um, I think it's, it's, it's a truism in Islamic studies that, or in religious studies that religions are internally plural, they're open for a debate and contestation over, uh, and that religious authority uh, doesn't exist in a vacuum. It has to be asserted, created, imagined, reimagined, and so on and so forth. And um, what we have here is clearly a case of uh, a very deep and profound contestation of religious authority. That so, um, and again, I think that's important also because all too often. Uh, in modern Central Asian history, people have argued, um, uh, have, have articulated their research position simply as a contestation between Central Asians or Uzbeks or Muslims on the one hand and the Bolsheviks on the other. Mm-hmm. And that always ends up homogenizing um, uh, the Muslim Uzbek Central Asian side and refusing to see internal uh, dissension there. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is also another current in that is uh, the argument that says that the Jadis were actually just a tiny minority that really not that important and that Central Asians remained nice pious Muslims and that too uh, I, I, needed, I need to challenge because again I think what's happening here is a real struggle over authority and over the meaning of uh, meaning of Islam and, and who, what it means to be a Muslim, who has the right and the capacity to, to define uh, being Muslim, and who carries religious authority. Now, uh, so this, uh, even Jadidism before 1917, was a form of contestation, where uh, the Jadids were challenging the authority of the ulama by... Mm, um, all sorts of critiques, such as that the ulama only uh, deal with commentaries and super commentaries and glosses. They don't actually go back to the original text. They don't even know Arabic properly, uh, and so on and so forth. So that was initially an Islamic critique of a reformist critique of the ulama. It goes with a critique of all sorts of other customs and practices. Shrine visitation was one. Um, uh, the, uh, the way the ulama exercised authority in how they dealt with documents um, and charged money for signing documents for people, that was also put under uh, critique before 1917. But again, the stakes are much higher and the rhetoric was much sharper after 1917. And here, uh, I think what I find interesting is that even though this is anti-clericalism, a lot of the arguments there still come from within the Islamic tradition. So even when uh, Fitrat writes his cycle of anti-clerical books in 1923 and 24, he retells the story of uh, the soul's journey uh, uh, from the grave to paradise by taking the Islamic narrative, but then subverting it at every single step. So the the person who dies is an opium addict who um, is buried uh, in, in the grave, these the two angels arrive to make uh, you know, to, to to ask him about his deeds, and he basically treats them as if they were Soviet bureaucrats. He asks them for their do you have your credentials with you? Why are you here? Why are you bothering me? Uh, 
so they beat a hasty retreat. Uh, then Fitra describes the, sign, uh, the scene on the Day of Judgment, and that, again, is a sign of total chaos in which, again, he, he pokes fun also at contemporary Soviet reality as well as making uh, fun of the Islamic narrative. Finally, uh, our hero shows up in paradise, which he doesn't really much care for, and then, you know, the, the, the play ends when he actually wakes up from his bad dream. Uh, but what you have here is the use of an Islamic narrative to subvert it itself. This is completely different from the kind of Soviet atheism that was being, that was coming into uh, Central Asia in these years, which really mounts an attack from completely outside the Islamic tradition by, by historicizing Islam and imputing economic motives of economic exploitation and so on and so forth. None of that is there uh, for Fitrat. Mm. And that's what I think makes that an Islamic critique of Islam itself. Um, uh, and again, I think that's where you—that's where you also see the difference between uh, sort of the the Bolshevik critique of Islam that comes from completely outside the Islamic tradition, using mm-hmm. a different vocabulary and different conceptual categories than that of the Jadis. Now we need to be careful. Maybe Fitrat was an outlier that many other. Jadids didn't quite go that far. But nevertheless, there is this, uh, uh, the line between sort of radical reform and sort of a complete revolution in Islam, is, it becomes slippery in, the, in that decade. And Fitrus completely sort of slips on the other side, but uh, others don't. But here too, again, I think this this radical scriptural rigor uh, uh, rigor of Muslim modernism could slide into that sort of very devastating critique of Islam. Now, as a final substantive question, uh, let us uh, bring us to one of the major conceptual themes of this book, which I think is a really fascinating and important theme, uh, which is what you call this tension or dialectic of modernity and authenticity. Uh, namely, and you captured it quite well, I'm uh, quoting here from your book, that the modern had to be built on authentically national roots. Uh, so how did the Jadids negotiate and wrestle with this tension or this dialectic uh, in their attempts to carve Uzbekness uh, or an mm-hmm. Uzbek uh, national identity? Right. Well, uh, I think let me just start by stating perhaps what should be obvious, but uh, it's nevertheless worth stating that I do not think that that as an analytical category, authenticity uh, is of any use. Uh, it's, it's a category of practice that our historical actors are deeply invested in. Uh, I myself, as uh, the historian here, do not find it possible to think in terms uh, of authenticity. So it's a, it's a category of practice that our historical actors are deeply invested in. And for them, the, uh, the task is to recover an authenticity that is national, that, but that has been corrupted over the centuries. Um, and recovering that means undoing the work of history. It means undoing, uh, say, the incrustation of uh, Persianate forms of um, literature, uh, the Arabo-Persian uh, vocabulary that Uzbek had acquired. That has to be done away with. Uh, one could argue that... Uh, number of forms of Islamic practice have nothing to do with uh, anything that was authentically uh, Central Asian or, or, or Uzbek. So that's, uh, the, that's sort of the, uh, the work of um, recovery uh, that uh, this hankering for authenticity requires. But 
uh, so the modern then means doing away with many of the bad forms of the present. But those are then described as being the uh, corruptions that have corrupted the national self itself. So once that work of uh, excavation is done, then uh, the national becomes pure again and uh, becomes in some ways synonymous with the modern. I'm, I'm afraid I'm not doing a very good job of explaining this one point here, but uh, it is uh, the idea that the argument for the modern, for the future, goes through the recovery of uh, a past that has been corrupted by the intervening centuries. Mm-hmm. Does that make any? Sure, absolutely, absolutely. That's that's really interesting. And in some way, I think the you know Bedil as a source of say doubt and skepticism in the Islamic tradition that is authentically Central Asian is a central part of that building of that um, authentic modern. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, I think with your permission, if I could ask one other actually uh, question, I mean, this is the kind of book where one could really spend <laughs> a few days uh, navigating it. But one of the things that I found interesting and just came to my mind is, in your introduction, you talk about, you see this book as a history of the 20th century, a different way of thinking about the 20th century, and about connecting the local with the global. Uh, so in what ways do you think this Central Asian example of the Central Asian Muslim intelligentsia and their attempts to carve a nation, how is it different or similar to other such projects which were going on in the 20th century in neighboring countries like Turkey and so on? Uh, could you say a bit about that aspect of your book, how you connect the global with the local and this new way of imagining the 20th century that you're presenting in this, in this project? Yeah, no, I, I think what I was trying to say there was that in some ways, um, you know, a lot of these developments I'm talking about are really not that unique. Mm-hmm. You have nation-building projects all over the place. You have revolts against tradition, revolts against custom. Um, and so part of it, you know, one could say, well, then what's original here? And uh, on the other hand, so much of Central Asian history has often been written uh, as something peculiar to Central Asia and exotic in its own way. And I was trying to connect those two. Mm -hmm. Uh, In terms of the broader 20th century, I think, uh, especially now in the early 21st century, um, I think this idea, the the absolute fascination that the idea of revolution had exercised on people, especially um, in the colonial world. I think that's something that... Mm -hmm. Um, we tend to, I don't think we tend to appreciate that quite enough. Mm-hmm. And this hankering for uh, admis- admittance into a universal civilization that mm-hmm. uh, in many ways the, the Uzbek national project was about. Um, uh, so, so these were some of the concerns I had in terms of comparison with um, neighboring countries. Turkey is the most obvious example. Of course, there's uh, there's a big difference. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- th- so the similarities are, are there. You can actually map a list of you know Kemalist reforms and what happened in Central Asia. The, the both uh, switched to the Latin alphabet in 1928. They both have sartorial reform. They both disestablished religion, so on and so forth. And in, in very uh, the two sets of reforms uh, go along almost simultaneously in the 1920s. But there's a very big difference that uh, the Kemalist regime, uh, which is also a modernizing elite, had full control of the state. Mm-hmm. And in Iran, and even in a smaller fashion in Afghanistan, uh, modernizing reform again was uh, 
promulgated by the state and the modernizing intelligence here is often through and built their lot with the state. Mm-hmm. In Central Asia, are among the Muslim societies of the Soviet Union, actually the same thing happens in Azerbaijan and in the Tatar lands, uh, the modernizing pre-revolutionary intelligence has never really wield political power mm-hmm. and never certainly on their own terms. Mm-hmm. So they are this, uh, there's this interstitial quality to them that they do not represent traditional society far from it. Mm-hmm. But they are also not, they have a very uneasy relationship with the state. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think it's here that perhaps um, is, the, is a fundamental difference that while the, the cultural revolution that takes place in uh, Central Asia, in Uzbekistan in the 1920s, is really the making of this intelligence and not of the Soviet state. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, nevertheless, the Soviet state eventually wins out, especially in the 19, very brutal 1930s, and the last chapter of my book sort of um, tells the story of the eventual extirpation of the pre-revolutionary intelligence. Uh, most of them are executed in 1938. And, but nevertheless, and here's one of those ironies that many of the cultural transformations that they brought about in some shape or form, not exactly the same, but in some shape or form, then are co-opted by the Soviet state and, and are f- absolutely fundal, fundamental to late Soviet and then post-Soviet Uzbek identity as it emerges. Mm-hmm. So I think that's where the comparison and the and the difference with other modernizing regimes in the Muslim world of the 1920s uh, can be conceptualized. So as we're coming to the end of our time, uh, uh, Adip, uh, could you uh, uh, share with us a bit about what's the next project? What, what are you working on these days? So, you know, there, there's still some stuff from this book still left over. Um, trying to figure out. Um, so all the cultural history went into this book, cultural and intellectual history went in here, but I had done quite a bit of research on actually uh, so on Soviet state building uh, on this colonial frontier and how the institutions and of the Soviet state and of the party were put together and how what was the place for um, Central Asians in that. So I'm trying to see if uh, I have the energy and the <laughs> and the material to put some of that together into another book or a series of articles. And I'm supposed to be writing a actually a general history of modern Central Asia. That, that book is under contract. Wonderful. So, Making Uzbekistan, Nation, Empire, and Revolution in the Early USSR, published by Cornell University Press in 2015. Uh, thank you so much, Adib, for your time and for such a wonderful book and for all the scholarship that you've done on this very important region and Muslim societies and uh, intellectual uh, discourses and movements uh, in Central Asia. So, thank you very much for your time. I'm sure our listeners would have really benefited from this conversation and will benefit uh, immensely from reading this book. So, thank you very well, much. Well, thank you. Thank you for uh, having me on. So this was my conversation with Professor Adib Khalid about his book, Making Uzbekistan. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Please also join us next time for another fresh episode of New Books in Islamic Studies. Until then, this is your host, Sher Ali Tareen, signing off. Stay well, take care, and keep listening to New Books in Islamic Studies.